Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey, this is O'Teal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. I'm Mike. I'm O'Teal. We got a great one for you this time. We've recorded our next guest during Black History Month, but we weren't able to put it out till right now, which happens to be Women's History Month. So she's the perfect guest, Brianna Joy Gray. Uh, Bernie Sanders' press secretary for his last primary run. And man, is she something. I've seen her on a bunch of podcasts and news shows that I follow and was so excited that we actually were able to get her on. Super uh, intelligent, super dynamic, and just amazing. She has a, a podcast called Bad Faith that you should check out if you get a chance. She's extremely... uh brave too there's a, there's a road trip that uh she tells a story about that was pretty pretty inspiring i like how her uh career and her her life path has kind of just been like okay here's the new here, here's the new opportunity let's see what we could turn it into uh it's incredibly inspiring and uh thank you so much brianna for for joining us and thank all of you for joining us for yet another episode and uh if you love what we're doing um, we are over at patreon.com slash comes a time pod where you can get a bonus episode each week, a whole bunch of amazing bonus content, patreon.com slash comes a time pod. And as always, you're hearing this on Osiris, uh, home to so many amazing podcasts. Check them all out at osirispod.com. Thank you guys so much. See you next week. Good fan out. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just such a huge fan because, you know, I was a huge Bernie guy. I was ready to give up on all of it. And my wife was like, you said you were done with politics after Obama. I was like, I know, but I think he's sincere. And then here you come. I was like, oh, man, what? This is awesome. So but you, you and Nina Turner, y'all like, y'all kept me just like spiritually, uh, topped off so I, I just want to thank you for that well, it's, it's very sweet of you to say you know it's you, what you know what did Bernie always say 
you know, it's it's not me, it's us. It's about a movement that's going to take time. And I know, believe me, I know more than most that it can be very dispiriting. <laughs> I know, that's why I'm so relieved to have you on because I'm like, <laughs> yes, someone that really gets it, you know. Uh, but man, what a treat. Thank you. I, I, I follow all your podcasts or your podcasts and then all the other you know, places that you've frequent. And so I was like, <laughs> let's just see, maybe we could get her on. So, but I'm interested. How did you, you start out as a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. How did you transition out of law? Yeah, well, I went to law school largely thinking, well, I don't really know what I want to do. I know that I'm a good writer and, you know, I like to argue. I was one of those kids where everyone said, go to law school. You like to argue, you know, and you know, I was going into law school at a time when it was a relatively safe bet that you should, you know, if you went to a good school, you could graduate, you know, get a job that paid you enough to pay off your loans fairly quickly. And then you'd have a JD and you'd be in your late twenties and you could figure out what you wanted to do from that point on. Uh, I didn't really ever have any strong intention of having a long career in law, but much to my hmm. chagrin, uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed about a month after I got on campus and I graduated <laughs> into the uh, Great Recession. And hmm. the opportunities to get the kind of big bonuses at big firms that enabled you to pay off your loans fairly quickly dried up. You know, it's hardly a woe is me story. You know, I was I was fine, but my kind of one and done strategy (laughs) didn't exactly pan out. (laughs) And I was looking at having to spend, you know, over a decade at one of these firms doing something I really fundamentally didn't believe in and also didn't really accord well with my skill set. I felt like I was good at things that just had nothing to do with my job. And it was kind of hard on my self-esteem. So I going into 2016, I became a huge fan of Bernie Sanders. I was very frustrated that other people in my immediate social surroundings, you know, people at the firm, people in my friend group, didn't see what to me felt really obvious, which was that this was the first time in my lifetime that there was a candidate that really accorded with my values. That wasn't just kind of the best approximation or the lesser of two evils, but who really was had a policy platform that was based in the same humanistic values that I had been brought up with. Um, and that was because he was untethered from the um, pay, pay for play game that really defines politics, was able to speak to my issues in a way that was clear and direct and, and that felt frankly revolutionary to my personal politics. But arguing with people about it who seemed just not to see it, people who I thought we were kind of on the same page and uh, same, <laughs> had the same backgrounds. I thought we were all really on it again. You know, it, it really kind of exploded. It was a mask off moment for me. And particularly as a black woman, I was frustrated by some of the narratives around identity politics and, you know, how only white bros liked Bernie and, you know, oh, you have to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman and all of this stuff. So I started a podcast with a friend of mine who's gay and Korean American who also supported Bernie to try to reframe some of those arguments and push back against some of the, um, that narrative. Now we were two nobodies from nowhere and I needed to draw attention to the podcast. So I had this inkling that I should start to write in order to do so. I could like put mm. some articles out there and my byline would be out in the world. And it was coming up on my 10 year college reunion. I was really upset that I was still a lawyer. I was feeling like I needed to make moves in my life. So I started to pitch, 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 pitch articles and nobody wanted them. 
Mm. Nobody wrote me back. (laughs) And then finally, a couple of months after the reunion, I realized I was Facebook friends with a woman from law school. I wasn't friends with her in law school. I never met her in person, but we were Facebook friends because we had been arguing on the same side of the issues throughout 2016. And she was another black woman. And we got the same kind of crap from everybody about how, you know, we must not exist because we're black women that supported Bernie. And she was a writer at a lefty magazine called Current Affairs. So I DM'd her and I said, Vanessa, what do you think? Should I pitch to Current Affairs? And she said, absolutely. And my first two articles that were published there both went viral. And after that, my writing career just kind of took off. Oh, fantastic. Um, And that led ultimately to getting the attention of the Sanders campaign who asked me to come down and cover a rally of his. That's when I first met Bernie in the spring of 2018. And then about a year- So they came to you? Yeah, they asked if I wanted to, he was- um, commemorating the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. And he was giving a speech in, I think, Memphis, Tennessee, and then Jackson, Mississippi. And he was driving. There was a three-hour car ride between, and they asked if I wanted to cover the event and ride with him and have an off-the-record conversation with him in the car. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. Trial by fire right there, huh? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, I was was very nervous. You know, you're nervous to meet your, your heroes. I was like, you know, he's kind of a famously what I knew of him publicly was that he was famously a curmudgeon. And I was like, gosh, what if we just don't get along? You know, I'll still care about him and like his politics, but you know, this could be awkward. Also, I was very new to journalism. I was hardly, you know, a veteran reporter or anything. And I, you know, was very much learning on the job, but I, I got New York Magazine to accept the pitch and they paid for my trip down there. Nice. My, meanwhile, my job doesn't know about any of this. Great. My firm has yeah. no idea that I'm writing. My firm has no idea that I have a podcast. My firm thing. My firm is wondering when my hours are down. Why I'm not billing as many hours as I usually did. Um, but I had just gotten back from a vacation as well, and when I got the opportunity to go and meet Bernie, and I was like, "Oh, I'm just taking a random." Wednesday, Thursday off in the middle of the week after having just gotten back from a week long vacation. And this does not look good, but how can I say no? Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, So I went down there and it was great, but that's when I got kind of found out by my firm and they're like, uh, this is not sustainable. What are you going to, you know, what's your plan? And luckily at the time I was already interviewing at the intercept, um, Ryan Graham at the, the senior politics editor for the, the DC office here, Um, had reached out and asked if I wanted to come on to be a senior politics editor there. And I got the job a week or so later. And then I worked at The Intercept for a little under a year before the Bernie campaign launched. And they asked me to come on as the national press secretary. Okay. I just got to point out what a total badass you are that like, you know, if Bernie Sanders approached (laughs) me and then the intercept subsequently approached (laughs) me, I'd be like, I must be doing something really right. I mean, I love both of those. Well, how, how was that first ride with Bernie? What was the, uh, that's a three hour that that's a <laughs> in a car too. Like I'm just picturing like the seating <laughs> when you sit with someone and you meet with them, you'd like to be sitting face to face, but you had to kind of be, you know, you're both sitting in the car. How was that? Did you guys hit it off right away? Yeah. I mean, I didn't. So knowing it was a three hour ride, part of me was like, are there, are there other people in the car? Does he have to talk business? Is he going to prepare for the speech? Like how much of this is, us talking and how much of this is really just more like a ride along for me to get the vibe of what it's like to be in this kind of environment. Um, And I was surprised to find that we really did talk throughout the car ride with the exception of maybe the last 30 minutes or so when he started to prepare for his speech. 
Um, so there was uh, someone who later became a senior staffer on the campaign. He was been a senior staffer for a very long time who drove. Um, there were lots of bags in the filler seats. I think it was like a red minivan of some kind. And then there was the videographer who I later got to know in the campaign, but didn't know from Adam at the time, crammed in the back with a bunch of equipment. <laughs> and Bernie and I in the, in the back seat. And it was, you know, it was, I was, I was very nervous, but it was a very natural conversation. I think that Bernie, everything that they say about him kind of being kind of curmudgeonly. I don't think that that's accurate. I think it's more that he really values authenticity. It doesn't have a lot of um, pomp and circumstance about his own persona and appreciates folks who will be kind of frank and disclose honestly. And I didn't have anything to really lose, right? It wasn't like I was looking for a job or I was really even a, a, a real, a quote unquote, real reporter. I was just a person who found herself in a situation and an opportunity. So I had nothing, I had, I had no reason to hold back or, you know, frame my speech carefully or I, you know, I was just being honest and frank. And I think that for that reason, probably we did from my perspective anyway, we did hit it off. You'll have That's to have Bernie on and ask him how he felt about it. <laughs> oh, well, you, you got the <laughs> you got the gig, so I mean, you had to feel you pretty good it. about it. Man, my anxiety would have been through. Like, what if I have to pee? What if I, you know, like, what if the phone rings? Like, oh my god, I would have been so nervous. <laughs> so, how did you? You know, people always assume that if you're black, you're a Democrat, you're for the Clintons, the whole thing. How did your family take it? Do you have brothers and sisters or mom and dad well, still alive? Yeah, my family's pretty progressive. Um, my mother always voted green her whole life. Mm. Um, her right. parents, my grandfather was a kind of um, Nation of Islam style radical uh, in the 60s. Her parents were very young. Um, they had her in their teens. So in the sixties, uh. they were very young. They were in their twenties. My mom was born in 1960. Um, so and my, my grandmother was kind of like a hippie Buddhist who did transcendental meditation. <laughs> nice. she, you know, she quit smoking in the early nineties and grew these really long locks to commemorate <laughs> it. And, you know, she's always been kind of whimsical, grew a lot of, had plants hanging everywhere and like yeah. a giant fish tank with these huge fish like this. And like, you know, it was, it was very, it was like a whimsical. My mom tells the story of um, coming home from school one day and they had painted all the walls in the apartment black and had gotten white shag carpeting. <laughs> and it was just like, the, it was like a cool vibe, you know, they were, it was a vibe. <laughs> this all seems to be making complete sense that this road leads to Bernie Sanders. So they were cool with Bernie. <laughs> they were cool. My, my mom put me on to Bernie. I was at the firm one weekend, um, <laughs> like closing, like preparing for trial for a big case. And I got a, uh, like a FaceTime from my mom and it was her and my brother downtown at a rally. And I was like, what on earth? It was, it was like, this was early. Like I really had, I didn't know Bernie Sanders from Barney Frank. Like I, I didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> and, and I, and I was like, where are you? She's like, I'm at a Bernie Sanders rally. I was like, why? I'm here with, I dragged your brother down here. I'm here with your brother. And she has her arm flung around a stranger as one is wont to do with these things. Yeah, <laughs> and had this, this signs up behind her and they're like chanting together, united. We won't be defeated or whatever. And I was like, okay, I guess this is something I should be paying attention to. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was really her and kind of the value set that I was raised with that I think 
made it a no brainer. And in my household, it would have been a, tr- it would have been a problem not to support, <laughs> not to support <laughs> Bernie Sanders. Um, I know that it's a, it's a struggle for other folks though. And I know um, that there is a real issue. I won't say issue, but there are legitimate historical reasons why black Americans feel a deep commitment to the democratic party. And I want to be respectful of that. When, when I talk about these kinds of issues, you know, we just interviewed uh, Martin Luther King, the third on yesterday on on our most recent premium episode of my podcast, bad faith. And even somebody who comes from such a radical tradition as he does, whose father identified as a democratic socialist is, Mm. you know, obviously I say this respectfully, you know, more moderate than kind of the Bernie left. And I think it's important for us to be willing to and to continue to engage in conversations with people like that because oftentimes it's kind of a moderate, a a, a moderation that comes out of habit as opposed to some deep-seated conviction. And it takes time and patience and talking to people about the ways the systems could work better and the way the world could be better outside of the two-party system that we've been led to believe are our only options. and when you do that, yeah. it can work. It just has to be a project that starts more than just the campaign season before. And sometimes I think the left needs to have a much more welcoming, solidaristic attitude toward those people the same way that they often will have about the white working class, which they should, right? But that also has to extend to black people and other groups who are perceived to be kind of intractably, intractably moderate. That's not the case. You just have to bring that same kind of organizing mentality um, and long-term organizing approach to our communities as well. I guess I don't have a problem with moderate, you know, cause like, what does that mean? You know, if what I have, a, it's just all policy for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I have a problem if it's too corporate. Yeah. So, but we're corporate also, you know, obviously overlaps heavily with moderate, but I like to separate the wheat from the chaff, you know? Well, for you, okay. Well, I think the the problem is that a lot of people don't see the core, the, uh, the, the, the oligarchy. They don't see the the corporate infiltration. When they see someone like Pete Buttigieg or even Kamala Harris say, this is the best we can do for now. They think that they're making those decisions based on their insider savvy knowledge of politics um, because they're being realistic and pragmatic, that they are assessing what the pushback is going to be from Republicans. And therefore, this is the best we can do as a kind of like a middle ground compromise position. And what they don't know is that that for policy after policy, overwhelming majorities of Democrats and even majorities of Republicans support these policies. And the obstacle is not Republican voters. The obstacle is members of both corporate parties, both corporate Dems and corporate Republicans who are both heavily invested in maintaining the status quo. And when you tease that out for people, when you, when you point out, Hey, look, I know that you respect a lot of these folks as civil rights. I know you respect Jim Clyburn a great deal as a civil rights hero. And I appreciate that. And I understand that. But it is also true that a majority of Biden voters in South Carolina wanted Medicare for all. And it is also mm-hmm. true that he, that Jim Clyburn was stridently against Medicare for all and supported Joe Biden yep. for that reason. And it is also true that Jim Clyburn takes more money from the pharmaceutical industry than any other member of Congress and the House or the Senate. Mm-hmm. 
I thought it was Cory Booker, but I stand corrected. No, it's, it's, it's Jim Cliver. It's Jim Cliver. So, 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 but the same goes for Cory Booker and everybody else. It's I like know. it's not about whether they're a good person or a bad person, if they mean well or they or they don't. Oftentimes, there are there are systems, there are structures in place that, frankly, create a lot of incentives for people to take this money. You get to Congress, and this is something I've I've only come to really learn over the last few years as I've you know become a journalist and really gotten more involved in politics myself. But you get to Congress and there are immediate incentives that say, if you want a good committee seat, if you want yes. the opportunity to get anything done and to have any power or influence while you're here, you need to fundraise for the Democratic Party. You need to fundraise for the Republican Party. OK, and I, we did an interview with AOC at um, The Intercept uh, shortly before I left where she was talking about this and, and, and talking about how she's in a unique position because she's so well-regarded and famous yeah. that she doesn't have the same issues fundraising as other people, but everyone else basically has to hit the phones from the second they arrive. And instead of spending their hours in the office working for their constituents, they're simply calling up donors and exchanging favors to try to get that money. Jeez. So you're not even allowed to be a public servant because you don't allowed. have time. That's right. That's right. And so it's not like I think Cory Booker is evil and terrible and I, you know, no, but the reality is, you know, the, Cory Booker, all of them, it's a collective action problem, could be speaking more about these kinds of issues and rejecting those incentives outright and have more of a willingness to say, hey, I'm OK with being a one term congressperson. Hey, I'm OK with catching hell from Democratic Party leadership, Nancy Pelosi, whomever, because I'm going to call out these incentives. You know, we just we just did a story uh, or we just had David Dayan on um, from the American Prospect who who did a story about why it is that Katie Porter, who's beloved, yeah. right? Katie yeah. Porter with her whiteboard, speaking truth to power, calling out the oligarchy on the, on the House mm. floor, right? Why she has been ousted from the financial, financial services committee where she's so effective. And what it seems, what seems to be the case is that she was on there last year she they didn't let her get a single um, bill yeah. out of committee. So this is not passing a bill. But getting a bill out of committee is fairly easy in a performer process. We don't even know what she was doing in there because she couldn't get a single bill out. And then this time around, they wouldn't even let her on the committee. And what seems to be the case is that the head of the financial services committee, Maxine Waters, who publicly in the mainstream corporate media is just embraced as a darling, seems mm. to have had some friction with Katie Porter. And here's potentially why the financial services industry is a uh, financial services committee is a large committee because they want to have as many members on it to liaise with the financial services industry, meaning banks large. You want as many people to have good relationship with banks if you're a Dem the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. But we're talking about Democrats here because you want them to be able to fundraise from that very affluent industry. Now, if you have someone like Katie Porter rabble rousing all the time and trying to get bills out that would deeply cut into their profit mm -hmm. and protect consumers, it's going to affect your ability to fundraise. Right. So yeah. Katie Porter is out, even though the people love her, even though she um, is one of the few progressive Democrats who are winning in these conservative districts and all of this. She's really important to the party. She flipped the district. Mm. But. What's more important than that is fundraising. And that story never breaks through the really basic narratives that you're hearing in the corporate news about Democrats good and Republicans bad and the racist right. and the insurrection. And all of that is important and true. 
But there are some really fundamental things going on that are misleading Americans about why it is that we can't have good things. And that's the corporate media. That's the corporate media. Yeah. And that's like, we, we were, we were lucky enough to have uh, Ben and Jerry on too. And we talked quite a bit about, we emailed about that, Brianna, um, about accountability and about, you know, if you think about this time where there are so many people who are just disenfranchised with the entire, you know, flavors, you, you, you basically subscribe to a flavor of the truth. Mm. And that's a hard thing to sift through. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's as a journalist, I mean, that's a, that has to be an interesting world to be in where there's so much, you know, of that mainstream paid for rhetoric. Yeah. I mean, well, when I first started writing op-eds really is what I was doing. I was kind of surprised how much leeway there is for me just to say my whatever cockamamie opinion. <laughs> I remember submitting my first few pieces and I was like, is someone going to vet this? Like, cause as a lawyer, my feeling is that all of my opinions in my personal life, regardless of whether I write them down, I am vetting. I am making a determination. Like I am building a legal case for why right, it yes. is that I believe what I believe. You're responsible. In, in the law, in the law, you're not allowed to just ignore an inconvenient argument. If if you're if you're writing a reply to somebody's brief and they have cited cases that are bad for you, you don't get to just write your reply brief and pretend those cases don't exist. If you do, the presumption will be that everything that they said is accurate, more or less. And like right. that's on you for not engaging with it. So I am in the habit, whether because I'm a lawyer or just because it's my sensibility to want to understand and have an answer for every counter argument that comes down the pike. And moreover, I need to understand why it is that I believe what I believe. It's not enough that I want healthcare and I I think it's good because that just is my value set. I also want to understand all of the counter arguments about why people think that we can't afford it, why we can't pay for it, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff and be ready to go to battle about that stuff. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And so when I was writing op-eds, I, I would, I treated it the same way. It wasn't just an opinion piece, you know, you know, I think cancel culture is real. I think cancel culture is like, no, I, if I'm going to write a cancel culture piece, one of my first pieces was about um, identity politics and weaponizing identity politics in defense of people like Hillary Clinton and, you know, Kamala Harris, regardless of what they do. Near a Tandon. Near a Tandon, right. And another one of the pieces was about cultural appropriation, which was real hot in 2017. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, it, it, I was taking a, a nuanced approach to both issues. I'm not sitting here and saying identity is bad. Don't talk about being black or queer or a woman. Like that's not the, the problem. The problem is pretending like that is essentializing, that that is all of who you are and that what you, who you are is dictating your politics down to a T and that we are all not influenced by a confluence of factors. I'm black. I'm also from New York. I'm also a woman. I'm also a person of relative privilege. All of these things are coming together to affect who I am as a human being. And just because Hillary Clinton is a woman doesn't excuse her long record of doing things that in fact are directly detrimental to the interests of women in this country. So and black people and black people in this country. Yeah. I goes without saying. <laughs> I mean, of course. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I, why am I talking about this? Oh, building, building a, uh, building a case. I was really shocked that it doesn't seem like every op-ed writer 
feels that same obligation. I think especially when you're writing op-eds, right? Because it's all just out of your head. It's not, it's not straight reporting. I'm not like going out and interviewing people. Um, but if there's a bigger obligation to really substantiate why you believe everything. And I think that's largely what my pieces took off. But it's also an obligation that I've carried through to my life. And the project that we've embarked on in this podcast of ours is to try to unpack basically, like try to have guests on that can excavate why it is that I have my entire belief in political value system with the hope that it makes sense to people that they might want to share that with me, but also that people who already do share my beliefs can have an easier time explaining why it is they believe what they believe to others and help bring people on board who don't disagree because they're bad people, who don't disagree because they're stupid, but who simply disagree because they've been fed a lifetime of a narrative that simply is out of step with how the world works. And it's not even really their fault. Yeah, I, I love to use just the... Uh, Money, just use money. Like, uh, where do they get their money from? Yeah. Like, you know, everybody said, like, oh, Citizens United. And if we can, I'm like, ah, Bernie, one of the greatest things that you ever did. And, you know, Bernie's not a saint to me either. I have some issues with him too. But the one thing he did for this whole republic is to show that you could run without big corporate money. And then all these younger people followed suit. So he's just said, I'll get the money out of my politics. So regardless of what corporate media omits or spins or just, you know, however they try to stack the deck, I could just take some very basic things. What is their money? Uh, where do they get their money from? How do these policies affect poor people? Right. And if they're against poor people, is that connected to the money they're taking sometime? Hmm. I wonder, you know, I mean, it's not rocket science. It's not. But people, if, if you yeah. don't turn away from corporate media, you never find the Brianna Greyjoys, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, um, Nina Turner's, you know, um, Sorry, I just said your name backwards. No, it's lots of people. Lots of people do. Game of Thrones really, really ruined me on that one. I'm sorry, Brianna Joy no, Gray. I, but yeah, I think that's. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, and I think that it's. Sometimes I think Democrats treat uh, voters like they're too stupid to get it. Um, or at least they pretend that they're too stupid to get it. And making that case is like, they're like, it's beyond us. It's like, oh, we're the, we're the oligarchy. You know, there was a big, a big <laughs> fight between, you know, Senator Turner and an MSNBC correspondent um, about her use of the word oligarchy. And he insisted that one, she was using it wrong, which she wasn't. And two, that it was somehow just out of a word that was out of touch. And, you know, the people wouldn't get it. And like, no one cares. No one really cares about money in politics. Like, why are we even talking about that? But my experience with as a journalist covering the 2018 midterms and traveling around for that and on the campaign was that it's one of the most unifying things you can talk about on the ground in red states, too. Everyone understands corruption and everyone hates it because especially if you're a working class person, you experience all kinds of forms of corruption in your everyday life from terrible bosses to, you know, what I did a federal uh, clerkship in the Eastern District before I started working at a firm. And the largest backlog of cases, one of the largest backlogs of cases that we have are um, uh, uh, Federal Debt Collection Act cases, cases where employers haven't played their 
employees money and mm-hmm. they owe their employees money. Like mm-hmm. in terms of outstanding debts in this world, it's, you know, you, you get, you get fired or you quit. Maybe you're being harassed. You're owed two weeks pay and employers just don't give it to you. And what are you going to do? You don't have a lot of money. What are you going to do? Bring a lawsuit, hire a lawyer, Mm. billions of outstanding dollars and they get away with it. Right. So people understand corruption. People are dealing with their landlords. (laughs) You know, people are working for these big, big businesses. These power bills in Texas right now. Oh boy. $17,000 for three days of power. A woman got auto auto deducted from her uh, checking account. It's unconscionable. I always used to joke that Bernie should just make his whole campaign about hating Comcast. (laughs) Frame frame everything in terms of Comcast. There's not a person in America who likes Comcast, (laughs) including the the, the poor souls who have to work for Comcast. Like, just let's liberate Comcast. (laughs) What's like the 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 guy saying that to Nina Turner? You know, nobody cares about oligarchy. Says the mouthpiece of the oligarchy. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? It's like that's why Bernie did so well. Like when Bernie went on Fox News and just crushed it. I was like, see, see, you know, I was just yeah. like, the you truth know, will set you free. Yeah. Well, we're, we all have the same things, you know, that we're, he's, he spoke. What is, how does this relate to poor people? You know, what? Just, oh, you know, so frustrating. Brianna, I'm someone who never trusted, uh, and never paid much attention. Uh, I'm an anti-authoritarian by by nature, I guess, and I don't really. I never believed in people wearing a suit and tie telling me that they had my best interests, whether it was a principal or a politician <laughs> or a coach. Um, the the Bernie got me. He uh, he got my heart when I heard him in a debate say the three words that I think are the wisest words a person can say. I don't know. Mm. He seems to have less of an ego Mm -hmm. than most. And I want to ask you about the danger of ego in politics. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like no one has the ability to just admit that they don't have the answers to everything. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back with more on Comes a Time. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wool. For more than 25 years, Smart Wool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. So this is this is something I also I struggle with a lot because I think there's a lot of pressure to 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 have quote unquote earned the authority to be a voice in politics, whether it's because you're a podcaster or a journalist or a politician. People, there's a lot of pressure to pretend you do know everything. Because otherwise, what separates you from the masses. Why do you get to be in front of the mic? Why do you get to be on the podium? And the answer should be because I, what my beliefs are and my ability to kind of communicate them effectively or to fight for them. But too often uh, a demonstration of kind of some kind of background knowledge becomes the ticket 
to feeling like you're entitled to have access to those platforms. And I struggle with this as someone who very much came into journalism, as I explained, from scratch. I wasn't a poli-sci major. I didn't even have, I was like your average, vaguely engaged citizen. (laughs) And like a year later, I'm like senior politics editor at The Intercept. And I'm like, oh, lordy. (laughs) Okay, well, this is fine. This is fine because I have a brain and I can use it and this is fine. And I'm sitting next to very smart people and I'm learning. I'm sitting next to Ryan Graham, senior politics editor every day. And I'm like picking his brain and asking him questions and figuring out how the world works. But I feel now, especially like as a podcast host, a lot of pressure to, you know, in this like lefty, fast paced kind of Brooklyn oriented world of podcasts where everyone has like read all the books and the theory and, you know, they're, you know, they oftentimes come from, you know, their, their, their parents were newspaper people and all of this kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's a little intimidating, but I actually think that's a really important asset. When I do an interview, even though sometimes I know that people are going to criticize me for it and tell me that I'm stupid and, you know, really pick at my imposter syndrome, I think there's a lot of value to me being willing to say, I don't actually know. And I'm trying to figure this out live on air with you together. So, you know, the, the whole left is really frustrated right now and not really knowing what to do next in the wake of Bernie Sanders. I think that's fine. Let's acknowledge that. But instead of doing the despairing thing that is going on in a lot of these irony poisoned podcasts where it's like, all right, nothing matters anymore. It's the, you know, in, in stage capitalism. Screw it all. You know, that's fine. And that has cathartic value. And I listen to those podcasts, too. Um, those are comrades. But. I also think there's some utility in saying, let's bring on all the people who seem to have some experience. Let's bring on some organizers. Let's bring on some people from DSA. Let's bring on some people who are more radical than that. And let me ask you the questions that I have after having observed why it didn't work and what the plan is to make it better. You're telling me now, for instance, that the new plan for Medicare for all is a state by state approach that has like a 20 year window on it. I don't love the sound of that. So instead of just accepting this is what you're saying to me, I before I do so, let me just let's just probe that a little bit and figure out why what is behind that decision making because me and none, nobody I know was actually consulted on on that being the game plan. Okay? We just did an episode on um Israel Palestine conflict and I was very nervous about it. One because I have no personal authority or expertise and two because it's a very sensitive subject. And you know I I asked a lot of what I felt were like kind of stupid questions, you know, but I felt like the conversation was going to this place. And I'm like, I listen to all these podcasts and I have the time. I don't know what they're talking about. All right, Brianna, suck it up. Be the dumb one who asked this question. Mm -hmm. And all of the feedback for that episode was thank you so much for asking that. This was the most productive conversation I've heard on the issue. And now I finally feel like I understand it and have the confidence to defend positions that are very third rail issues, even though they're important and they're right. And the same was true. We had um, uh, Ben Cohen come on to talk about Julian Assange, right? This is another one of those issues that people, even people on the left are like, I think I'm supposed to be weighing in here and be supportive of Assange, but I've heard these things about how he's like a bad dude. And so maybe I don't want to weigh in and it's a complicated, you know, it's important, I think, for us to be willing to be like, okay, I might be ignorant, but that ignorance shouldn't keep me from engaging. And I feel like my own ignorance or my own I mean that like not stupidity. I mean like ignorant, like not knowing oh, no, about things. Absolutely, yeah. is a really yeah. powerful tool. And having a little bit of the confidence to be able to own that, 
um, and not feel like that is reflective of like my worth or intellectual merit or anything like that is a real, is a real boon to the work that I do. See, I, I highly, highly respect that because I feel like you could see right through the hot air when you, um, just see somebody that's answering for the sake of, I have to answer because I have to pretend like I know something admitting you don't know leaves you more open to learning and vulnerability Mm. and it makes others feel comfortable. And I think that's where the most important thing is right now, where everybody feels like we're all living in a silo. Yeah. You know, it's hard to figure out everything all at once. So, and there's a lot of stuff, (laughs) a lot of stuff and and at a rapid uh, speed too. Super fair. It'd be nice if uh, that attitude was automatically, like, reflexively equated with intelligence. Like, being like, you know, I'm ignorant of this. I mean, help me out. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's hard. Like I, so my my co-host, he's from the most um, popular podcast on Patreon, Patreon, and the most popular podcast on the left, um, Chapo Trap House, and they're they have become very successful and popular in large part because you know they they talk fast and they're deeply knowledgeable and they. do all these deep cuts and they name whoever was a Senator, you know, from Nebraska in 1972. And they're like, they just know all of the things and it's very impressive. And I learn a lot and I really enjoy listening to it. Plus they're really funny. Like that is why I listen to that show. But I also sometimes just want something else. I want someone to take a beat and just explain the thing to me. So I understand why the conversation about the Senator from Nebraska in 1972 is even relevant to me. Cause if I don't, <laughs> if I don't get it, it's like, there's no yeah. point. And also there's this piece of it. That's, that's figuring stuff out. So there's a piece of politics that nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's not about how long I've been in the game and how much historical knowledge I know. Nobody knows. Cause we are literally figuring it out, you know? So, so, you know, we had this conversation about someone came up with a strategy to get a floor vote for Medicare for all. And they came up with a strategy that says, you know, we can leverage the fact that Nancy Pelosi needs to be voted for, um, that she needs to be confirmed as speaker. Uh, and the fact that the Democrats only have a very narrow margin in the House. That means that if there's only a handful of defections, let's say five, seven defections, that Nancy Pelosi would not be speaker. And they would have to keep voting and voting and voting on consecutive rounds until she got a um, majority of votes over, you know, majority of votes and could actually be speaker of the House. And during that time, you could try to extract whatever concession from her you wanted. So someone came up with this idea and it, it took it took off online because leftists are so sad and tired of losing and sad about Bernie. And they're like, okay, we could get something. I don't really care what it is. Maybe it's a floor vote on Medicare for all. Maybe it's getting rid of Richie Neal as head of the Ways and Means Committee, which stands in the way of a lot of our progressive issues. Maybe it's getting rid of some of these other procedural things that stand in the way of progressive programming. Filibuster. Whatever it is. I mean, things that are in Nancy Pelosi's purview, largely, um, But yes. And the fact that that was so exciting to so many people, I think, came from the fact that somebody just used their noggin and was like, oh, this is a strategic opportunity. And who's thinking of subsequent strategic opportunities that are coming down the pike? We interviewed Ralph Nader and Ralph Nader was like, hey, I I used to dress up as a as a waiter. 
I wish it was a waiter with like a big silver tray and an apron on and like rushed some like congressional meeting <laughs> or I forget what it was, but he like basically crashed some political um, fet in order to make his issue heard. Yes. You know, exactly. like people, people respond to creativity. People respond. OK, well, if we're not going to do Medicare for all Bernie style because he didn't win, how on earth do we do it? What is the plan? What is the plan to capitalize on this moment where 15 million Americans have just lost their employer-based health insurance and make sure that the Pete Buttigieg's of the world can never again get on TV and tell the lie that if you like your insurance, you can keep it because you can't if you lose your job. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's so it's, funny you bring up Ralph Nader and that that was the he, he got my the first time I was ever old enough to vote. I voted for him because he wasn't allowed in the debates. Yeah. I remember if he got, I, I think that what I was, to, if he received 5% of the vote, he would be invited into the, so I said, absolutely. We need more than two choices. Yeah. Well, what I was advocating, you know, I'm, I'm Jill Stein's second most famous uh, 2016 voter after Susan Sarandon. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> when, when I voted for Jill Stein in New York and it and cost her, it cost Hillary Clinton the election by voting for Jill Stein in New York. Uh, I, I, um, I, what I was telling people was largely that like, okay, fine. Let's pretend you just hate Jill Stein and you think she's a woo woo crazy person or whatever. Fine. But Hillary Clinton is going to win New York. She is, a former senator yeah. from New York. She's going to win New York. It's a blue state. Right. New York hasn't gone red since before I was born. Like, relax a little and yeah. think about how to use your vote most effectively. Well, if you don't want to waste your vote, if you don't want to throw away your vote, consider getting the Green Party to 5% and so they can get federal matching funds, easier ballot access, all of the kind of things that you're talking about. And even that conversation was so maligned. You had oh, people yeah. like, you know, you're, you're, this, is the, this is the break I'm talking about I experienced in 2016 where all your faves, you know, I'm watching, uh, what's her name? Um, the Canadian Daily Show lady. Uh, oh, she's blonde. Samantha B. Samantha B. I'm watching Samantha B. You know, I used to like to watch Samantha B. Then suddenly I'm being hit with 30 minute segments about how Jill Stein is horrible. Meanwhile, there's an election going on with Donald Trump in it. And it's like, what? This is how you're wasting your time. <laughs> Jill Stein is loony and plays the lute and, and, you know, has crystals hanging from her balcony. OK, <laughs> first of all, that sounds dope. Second of all, <laughs> this is this is what's going on right now. But you're you're you're, you're choosing to spend your time vilifying a, a a female doctor who simply wants to highlight progressive issues that you claim to believe in that you and your compatriots in Canada have. Yes. <laughs> you you have all these you things. Have it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that is such a disillusioning experience. But people and it works on people. People feel like they are entitled to ignore the Green Party to ignore progressive issues, to ignore people yeah. like Bernie Sanders. That's because we need to tell them. That's because we keep voting for them <laughs> and then they don't and then they just take a crap on us. It's it's so frustrating to me. It's like they yeah. can't win without our votes. That's why I'm yes. like, there's I really am at a crossroads with this thing. I heard that interview with Ralph Nader and I yeah. was like, man, I don't know if I could just keep giving these guys my vote. And then they do what they did. Two thousand dollars becomes fourteen hundred dollars. Oh, we're yeah. getting out of Yemen. Oh, but just to, just fifty thousand dollars. You know, like, fifty thousand dollars in student loan relief becomes ten thousand dollars. Well, remember, right. all Private. of it became fifty, became ten, which became ten 
if I think it's now it's 10 if you went to a public school and also make less than $125,000. And I'm sure there is more coming down the pike. It's going to end up being. Oh, yeah. Do you remember Kamala's, Kamala's student debt plan, which was like, if you hop on one foot in a, a disadvantaged neighborhood where you've opened a, like, <laughs> the hop on one foot part is a, is a lie, obviously, but the, the rest of it, you, you had to open, you had to open a business in an, a disadvantaged neighborhood that ran for three years. <sighs> To get ten thousand dollars worth it, most businesses and don't even last a year under the best of circumstances. Exactly. <laughs> know, exactly. Right? Meanwhile, if you go back to when I was a senior or in a junior in high school, we literally had people from college. Uh, I don't even know where they were actually from. Probably from the student loan foundations. Mm-hmm. Come and give talks to a full assembly hall, saying, "If you don't get a college degree." You're doomed. Yep. And then by the time I was a senior in college, if you don't get a graduate degree, yep. you're doomed. So everyone, your value just kept dropping no matter what education you had. Yep. That, that's now, what I was told. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was told. And then on top of that, I was told, especially, okay, you're black. So you've got to overachieve and, and do 10 times better than the next person to even get the same amount. I'm looking at these studies showing a, a black a college degree gets the same income as a high school, gra- white high school graduate. So, okay, wow. now you have to really? go to the best college that you can get into. To you got to go to the best. You got to go to the best. Okay, now I did everything that you told me to do. And now Joe, Bi- Joe Biden gets on the stage and says, well, we don't want to pay the tuition of, of Harvard graduates. So we're not going to pay off any student loan debt. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. First of all, I ha- there are a lot of rich kids I went to school with, but guess what? They don't have student debt because they were rich. <laughs> they were rich. No one takes out an 8% interest, a loan at an 8% interest rate. Okay. I paid $18,000 worth of interest my first year paying back my law school debt. Interest oh. alone. Wow. Yep. With like 5,000. I have to look at my statement, but just a crumbs to the principal. I mean, okay. I'm, yeah. It's, yeah, go ahead. Play. Sorry. I'm sitting on like, oh, close to $50,000 and I have an uh, undergrad and a, mas- and a master's that I don't use. Right. And it, the minute you got on campus, there were credit card companies with tables yeah. set up in the courtyard that was sign up for a credit card and you get these black light Bob Marley posters or this awesome <laughs> Cypress Hill poster or three pick three t-shirts for this MasterCard and everybody I know was getting credit cards. Yeah. So you're just literally now in debt. the debt system for yeah. the rest of your life. Yeah. I've nice said it forever. You- debt is the new slavery, you know? Yeah. But we we let them get away with this all because of this tribalism. Yeah. Like it's okay if the Dems do it, but it's not okay if the Republicans do it, and this is, I would bring up this other third rail, and one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you on is to talk, I mean, you've touched on a little bit about, you know, how they weaponize identity politics. And like, you know, just because it's the freshest on my mind, mm-hmm. I'll take Neera Tandon, who, you know, says, you know, I lived in Section 8 housing. It's like, okay, but then your policies don't then reflect how you're helping other people to get pulled up from that same place, you know, you're, so you don't get to use that you came from that when you're working against it. And this happens a lot. Like I, it's another third rail. I didn't vote for Obama the second time. I was like, he's ahead of me. (laughs) He was like, I just, he's acting too much like a neocon. I just made a long list of things. I'll never forget. I sent it to my family, which kind of touched off, (laughs) <laughs> Set off a little grenade in there because he's made into a saint. 
you know, and it's uh, I get it. Representation matters. But if your policies are not in line, then it's like, well, I'm just being tribal myself. You know, so I made this list of things and I changed it to George Bush. It was like, remember what George Bush did? Blah, 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 blah. And I was like, and I was like, oh, yeah, that wasn't Bush. That was Obama. So all of a sudden it's OK. And I'm like, That's I can't clever. I like that trick. I can't play that game. I can send it to you because it's a longer <laughs> list than you'd think. Yeah. And we were mad about it when Bush was doing it. And rightfully so. You know what I mean? Like, so then when Biden says, oh, we're going to get out of Yemen, but not really. Oh, we're going to close private prisons, but not really. It's like, here we go again, Lucy, with the football. Have you seen and the new I'm, cages for kids? <laughs> the new um, detention, these like, uh, they're like um, crates, shipping crates. Uh, and liberals are defending them on the basis that, well, the families, those are for those are for kids with their families so they can live in these crates <laughs> together. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was God. the same defense of the cages that Obama built. Well, the, well, the cages I, Obama built were, you know, they're all in there together. It wasn't family separate. The line that's been drawn is Trump's unique evil is a family separation, which, of course, is a unique evil. But like, it's not the evil. It's not the only evil. <laughs> and you can't only care about it because it was the one that Trump innovated. <laughs> and it wasn't wow. like no families were uh, right. weren't separated under Obama either, but it's a really hard thing to talk about to get past that. You know, it's always the same thing. Look at policy. How did it affect poor people? How did it, you know, and it's, it's just like, man, I, I, it's so frustrating. So I was, that's why I asked you, how did your family take it? And you're like, oh, they turned me on yeah. to Bernie. I was like, well, I'm not getting anywhere here. <laughs> no, but look, I, I think, look, I'll say this. Obama was the first Democrat my mother ever voted for. And even as she loved Bernie, she had a harder time and was very wary of my, frankly, pretty soft criticisms of Obama and the pieces that I was writing throughout 2017 and 2018. And I knew because I wanted not to alienate an audience. First and foremost, my my goal is to persuade. I don't want to be right more than I want to persuade. So that's what I need to remember. Yeah, it's and yeah. look, I'm not a saint. Like in my personal life is a different story. I've had some screaming matches with some friends. That's different. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in the public sphere, I know that if I say something critical of Obama, I have to write at least four sentences about how there were unique obstacles and he was facing racism and there was obstruction that was unprecedented and yada yada. But also, he could have done this and should have done this. Yeah, there's a lot. And it's, bully, it's a lot and it's frustrating. Pulpit. It's the same, the same with identity stuff. If, if I'm writing, yeah. I think part of the reason why my initial critique of identity politics was so popular is because my opening paragraphs were all about identity is important. You know, people organize on the basis of their identity because in this country, m- most of us have been marginalized on the basis of our identity. You can't pretend that identity doesn't matter when there were laws on the books when my mother was born that made her a second class citizen. Okay, you can't, and, and for our LGBT brother and sis, brothers and sisters, the, the laws on the books until two seconds ago and on and on down the line, our immigrant family, all of those kinds of things. So you don't get to say the right wing critique is stop talking about identity because they don't want us to undo the laws that have created a caste system in this country. Right. OK, so yeah. I want to take that head on, acknowledge it, make sure that you can't cast me in that camp. We are not making the yeah. same critique. Me, 
me and Marco Rubio are not making the same critique yes. of identity. <laughs> okay. However, yeah. the thread of truth that is here is that it's absolutely absurd to pretend that just because you are an identity, you have beliefs that are beneficial to that identity group. And you know that. Democrats, because you don't like Carly Fiorina and you don't like Nikki Haley and you don't like Clarence Thomas. And you you are very able to see that when that person's a Republican. And I need you to open your eyes just a little bit wider and understand that the same can be true when it's a Democrat. And when Jen Psaki is standing at the White House press platform podium defending um, Joe Biden, Talking about how, you know, there was some pushback against, oh, what was it? She she has now done this twice where she's pivoted from a substantive policy critique to, uh, well, first I would like to just point out that, you know, oh, Janet God. Yellen is our first female, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's so, it's becoming really transparent to a lot of people. The, the new, um. Is it? The Secretary of Defense is a black guy. You know, it's like this is the people were complaining about um, Biden's like number one aide, uh, Cedric Richmond, who's a congressman from the most polluted air tract in America, that one of the top seven most polluted, no, seven of the top 10 most polluted air tracts in America are in his district in Louisiana. And people were complaining about this guy as being being appointed as an environmental liaison. And the response is. (laughs) How dare you critique a black man? <laughs> like the people who live in his district are black. The people yeah. who are breathing the air in his district are yeah. black. So many of these Democratic cities, and this is this is a Republican talking point, but Democrats have to contend with it. So many yeah. people in these Democratic cities where all of this police violence has happened are democratically controlled cities, oftentimes with black representatives in leadership yeah. positions. Okay. LA's so, trying to get rid of their black lady that's a I forget her. I think she's a police uh, police chief or something. She's way up there. And people people will act as though, well, because she's black, it's an act of racism to want to get rid of someone who has been overseeing an unjust system. And Kamala Harris has encountered the same thing. Obviously, Kamala Harris, you know, did not have the support of the black community. (laughs) She didn't. Nobody voted for her, for one. She had to drop out before her own primary, before the California primary um, in her home state, because Andrew Yang was polling higher than her in her home state. Yep. Obama's how that happened. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Kamala Harris, you mean? Well, I'm just saying the whole Bernie thing, like, you know. They were both doing terrible. Oh, <laughs> you, you know? mean pulling them out of obscurity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and then yeah all yeah. of a sudden, it's like, oh, you know, and I'm like, yeah, oh, Mickey man, McCall, please, yeah. please. I I get into that a lot with the. I, I go, okay, representation matters. What about Condoleezza Rice? What about Ben Carson? What about Clarence Thomas? What about what about? And it's like, oh, so don't get mad at me when I say, what about the Secretary of Defense, who I can't remember his name right now, yeah, but he took either. like over a million dollars from Raytheon. Raytheon. So yep. come on, this is the guy that's going to be making our foreign policy. He's our point man on foreign policy. And Raytheon is like stuffed all that money in his pocket. Like, well, how do you think that's going to go? More, and they immediately, more. it's already happened. They immediately did yes. a deal. I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm like not remembering the detail in this moment, but immediately the conflict of interest became apparent. And what's really funny is Dems do this thing and they'd started doing this. I noticed really hardcore during Hillary Clinton in the speech conversation, which was, 
oh my goodness, how dare you say that Hillary Clinton would ever be influenced because she took a lot of money to give a Wall Street speech? What on earth, what planet? They were so like, well, what planet do you live on when just because someone is paid half a million dollars for a speech, <laughs> they would change their opinion on something? That is just the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like they really pretend like pay to play doesn't work, like it doesn't exist. You know, yeah. someone sent me a, a a cheese basket and I found myself feeling very positively toward them. <laughs> I was like, gosh, Brianna, you better like get it, get it together because like that was a really nice gesture. But you can't go soft on this person just because they sent you a cheese basket. OK, and that was that was a cheese basket. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's the you thought know, that counts. I, you know, before we before we have to this is this is we, we would love to have you back. Absolutely. Oh, of course. But I would love to ask you for the the person who is maybe just let just coming on, you know, and just figuring out that they have to pay attention and that the truth <laughs> that maybe the four channels uh have been feeding us or Facebook, whatever you choose to like, and the algorithm is feeding us. Can you recommend to our listeners some of the news channels that you personally uh, appreciate and that you kind of find to be the most, most truthful? Yeah. I mean, honestly, in 2016, I was so demoralized. I had to start, I think the lefty podcast space was really important for me. I, I was listening to a ton of podcasts that I had to stop listening to because suddenly when they started talking about politics, it was like, whoa, Nelly, I, I can't even, I can't be in here with you. I really liked you. This was a fun podcast, but this is just too traumatizing in this moment. <laughs> so I started listening to Chapo Trap House. I started um, listening to like unauthorized disclosure. And that led me to the Katie Halper show. And Katie Halper has become a friend. Um, She does these amazing live streams. I find her to be really accessible. And I think that she has some of the best guests on the left and really hustles and has a a nonstop stream of really compelling people in a really timely way because she does so many episodes a month. She also has a podcast with um, Matt Matt Taibbi uh, with Rolling Stone called Useful Idiots, which is good. they're uh, the dig from Jacobin reading Jacobin and current affairs, which is a magazine that is close to my heart. That's a copy of the back of my own lamp. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm a contributing editor there. And it has a, I think of all of the lefty outlets, it has a much more approachable um, style. Uh, the way that it's written is very accessible. And it also has a lot of like color and light and joie de vie. The, the hard copy is gorgeous and it's opulent and colorful in the way that the left doesn't always allow it to be itself to be the 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 founding editor like moved down to new orleans because he just likes color and texture and he's like why shouldn't we be based out of new orleans people wear costumes here all year it's fabulous (laughs) and they also have a podcast um which is great the current affairs podcast and of course i would recommend um, people listen to, to bad faith because we do try to be absolutely accessible uh, as well. Um, and obviously there's, there's big, there's big platforms like young Turks and, and Sam Cedar. I have had some ideological disagreements with them of late, but I'm not going to pretend that there's not a lot of like basic information there for people to learn, but just be careful and keep a critical mind about stuff. And, and I'd say yeah. diversify. 
I listen to all kinds of things that I don't agree with at all. I listen to Pod Save America. I listen to Red Scare. I listen to all all over the ideological Ooh, spectrum. <laughs> I stick with Hill Rising, Kyle Kalinsky. Oh, The Hill. Yeah, that's a good know. one. <laughs> The hill definitely. To music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you probably have better mental health with all of us here. Oh God, if you only knew. If you only knew. Uh, Brianna, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. This has been really incredible. And thank you, Atiel. It's so nice meeting you both. I can breathe again. <laughs> we'll uh, catch you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.